Cambridge Ideas, transforming tomorrow. Hello, I'm Willie Brown, and you're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. In this talk, we ask, what will be the recession's lasting legacy? Are any of the political parties being honest about the impact of the recession on future taxation and public spending? Has quantitative easing worked? Will women be worse affected by the recession than men? On the panel is Alistair Milne of the Cass Business School at City University, Professor Jacqueline Scott of the Sociology Department at Cambridge, and Bob Rothorn, Emeritus Professor of Economics at Cambridge. So let's go inside the Mill Lane Lecture Room at the heart of Cambridge University and hear our first speaker, Bob Rothorn. Well, um, my thing is really Britain, Britain after the crisis. It's not the world after the crisis. Well, a group of us associated with the Centre for Business Research and the economics faculty have been thinking a bit about this. And I think there are two aspects, really. The first um, are what you might call crisis-related problems. In other words, that over a long period of time, government's been overspending. I mean, a wise government will underspend during a boom and will be able to, using its own funds, to spend, uh, overspend during the recession. That's the model of certain countries, like in Scandinavian countries, for example, have done that. And the second thing is a balance of payments problem. That uh, the question is, how does Britain pay for itself in the world economy? How do we finance the importation of things we need? or how do we produce them ourselves on a, sc a scale which means that we're um, financially viable. And uh, the, the problem doesn't look too bad now, but I think the underlying problem is quite serious. Well, what has this crisis done as far as these things are concerned? Well, the crisis has dramatically increased the scale of government borrowing. It was already, the government was already borrowing before, and it's accelerated the associated debt build-up, so that government debt has been building up. And the second thing about the crisis is that it's concealed the underlying balance of payments problem. That uh, we don't have a very big balance of payments deficit at the moment because the, what the crisis has done has depressed our imports. So consequently, the balance of payments looks stronger than it really is. On the other hand, the debt is, is building up very rapidly. Well, let's th think of something about the government debt and deficit. In the budget earlier this year, predicted a deficit of 175 billion pounds for this year and the IMF later predicted 191 billion. So that's the amount the government is borrowing, or is financing by, um, well, shall we say, it's called quantitative easing, but in cruder language, is printing money. Uh, and so that's the scale of the debt. Now, in the year 2000, we had one of the lowest deficits in the world. We still were overspending, but not that much. And, um, and uh, we will now have this, this year and next year the largest deficit of any OECD country. So we are now overspending on a gigantic scale. And the last budget projected that public debt will reach 76% of gross domestic product by 2013-14. And that's the double the figure for last year. So within about five years, the public debt will double. And it's much bigger still, still if we consider semi-nationalized um, banks. So consequently, what we can say is the government's borrowing on a large, very large scale and the debt is exploding. Now, I think what must be stressed is that the public discussion of this is a bit misleading. The Daily Mail, for example, says government borrowing this year would amount to £7,600 for every family in the UK. And last week, <laughs> the Spectator National Debt Counter, which you can get on their website, where it's the debt is <coughs> rising before your eyes, said that every family of four in the UK owes £28,290. 
it's probably a bit more than that now because the thing's ticking over. Well, it's very misleading because the bulk of the public debt, um, probably between two-thirds and three-quarters, is held by British citizens, or British residents anyway. So in other words, most of the money that the government owes, it owes to British people. So, they, so it's not the case that every family in the country owes uh, 25,000 or whatever pounds it is. The fact is that some, com um, some families owe this through the government, because the government owes it, but they owe it to other families in the UK. So it's not the case that the UK as a whole is overspending on a truly dramatic scale. As I said, the balance of payments at the moment is quite small, which is the best measure of overspending. And if you look at Britain's stock of assets overseas, compared to the liabilities, Britain is actually a slight net creditor. So it's not the case that the country as a whole is going hock to an enormous scale, nor is it the case that the government is going in hock to an enormous scale to people abroad. It's mainly going in hock to its own other members of, of the country. And so, in my view, the biggest, biggest issue with the public debt is not simply that it's large, but that it's a burden, it's going to be a burden on one section of the population to the benefit of another section. So it has quite an important distributive consequence. And I think there's a lot of misleading discussion about the, the country will be dragged down with gigantic burden on it. Well, the answer is that some people have a burden and the other people will be, as it were, um, accepting it. Okay. And also, the debt is not that large compared to other countries. We've been borrowing very much more heavily than many countries, but we started off with a low public debt. Uh, and so the projections done by the IMF, for example, suggest that in 2014, our debt will be similar to that or lower than that of a number of other advanced economies. Right from 1920 through to 1960, throughout that period, it was higher than approximately 80% or much higher of GDP, which is the kind of figure people are talking about. So the level of debt that we will have on current projections as a percent of GDP is no bigger than it was for quite long periods of our history and is well below the post-Second World War peak. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that debt doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you, you mustn't do anything about it, but it means that we're not facing total disaster and that we have to take dramatic emergency measures within the next year to get everything under control. And I think that there's another agenda that a lot of people want to cut public expenditure or cut taxes. And I, I have to say I share that agenda to a degree, but uh, I don't think that we, we shouldn't just use the debt as an excuse for panic measures. I think some kind of more cautious and careful approach is required so that we make cuts and changes in terms of long-term desirable things and not simply think, say this is an emergency and whatever happens we have to have huge cuts. Okay, so let's take the other side of the, the issue. Well, the other one is the balance of payments. And at the moment, we have a small balance of payments deficit. It's about 2 to 2.5% of, of gross domestic product for this year, which is not dramatic. It's not that big. But um, as I said, the, the, the group at the CBR and the economics faculty have been considering this from different longer term, from different points of view, looking at trade competitiveness and looking at the what you might call the macro balance between savings and investment in the economy. And we, tend, we, we come to the conclusion that there's an underlying deterioration in the situation, that, the, that Britain is on, on track for a much bigger balance of payments deficit than we have now. So in other words, internationally, we will start overspending in quite a serious way. We're not doing that at the moment, but we will do so. And that's not primarily due to the crisis. The crisis, in fact, has improved the situation because it's cut back imports dramatically. 
but over the longer term there are problems. And why are there problems? Well, the first thing is North Sea oil. That Britain had a very large, was a very large net producer in the 1980s of oil, so we got a very big revenue from that. Well, it's, gone, it's declining rapidly now, and even the most optimistic projections suggest that it will disappear. Oil production in the North Sea will decline to maybe one-fifth of what it is within 10 or 15 years. So we will, be, we will be a big oil importer, become a big net oil importer. The second thing is the price of energy, food and minerals may well rise. It's very hard to say this. Everyone <laughs> says to you, in the long run, all these things are going to get very scarce and they're going to rise dramatically. And of course, next week, the prices collapse. I mean, that's, that's the nature of it. I mean, what's the dialectical road, as Stalin might have said, to higher oil prices is lower oil prices. <laughs> And that's not entirely unreasonable, because if you're against a background where people expect a long-term rise in prices, you, get, you can easily get speculative over, over, overshoot that they, fall, they rise too much and then they collapse, which is what happened last year. Anyway, the second, the second thing is energy, food and mineral prices may get higher. The third thing is city earnings. People have talked about the city collapsing, um, but the, I think that's not true. I think there is, however, that the, um, the, the city earnings have fallen this year. Uh, or somewhat, uh, the question is what will happen to them in the future. And my own view is they will rise, but they will rise more slowly than in the past. So uh, we've got th three things. We've got oil production uh, declining rapidly, North Sea oil production. We've got higher energy, food and mineral prices for the things we have to pay to import. The third thing is that uh, the city is not collapsing, but it's not going to have probably flour in the way it did in the 1990s and, um, well, the early part of this century. Uh, the fourth thing is that we had a very big income from overseas investments. Britain had a huge boom in its overseas investment income in the last decade. That's probably come to an end. Again, we're not going to, it's not going to collapse, but it's probably not going to rise anymore, and it's quite sharply down this year. And the fourth, fifth thing is we've got a weak manufacturing trade performance. So you add all these things together, North Sea oil, uh, higher energy and other prices for inputs, uh, stagnant, stagnant or slowly growing city earnings, not collapsing, fourth, less income from overseas investments, and five, a rather weak manufacturing sector. In, it's in deficit, and its deficit is, is likely to increase somewhat, again, not dramatically. Well, you add all those things together, and no single one of them, other than possibly oil, uh, oil, North Sea oil declining, is truly dramatic. North Sea oil declining is a, very, is a big item, especially if oil prices are high. Of course, obviously, if oil was extremely cheap, it wouldn't matter if you didn't produce it, because you could buy it cheaply from abroad. But if you don't produce it and it's expensive, then it's um, very serious to you. So that, I think, is probably the biggest single item. You add in the others, each one is not dramatic, but they, the collectively they add to, out to quite a lot. Um, in fact, they add, and our projection is that within a few years, the balance of payments deficit will be around 5% of gross domestic product. We assume that the economy will recover in terms of employment. So that's, a, that's assuming that we'll get back to unemployment rate of about 6%, which is what it was in 2008. Uh, so it's, it's not the lowest uh, seen in history, but it's relatively low by modern standards. But the background to that is that if we, if we were at that level of economic activity, we'd grown like that, then we'd have a balanced payments deficit around 5% of gross domestic product. And in what you might call the modern era, which is the last 50 years, 
uh, only, that's only happened in one year, which was 1989, and it was a very brief episode where we had a deficit that big. So we're heading for quite a serious balance of payments deficit. I th that, was, that would be my judgment. Now, the only thing about it is, is the one thing you can say by pro about projections of this kind is they're always wrong. The question is, how, how much are they going to be wrong and why? Um, for, for what reason? And I think it's very unlikely that the, that the balance of payments deficit won't get quite a lot worse. The question is, that, is what, are, what are the implications of this? Do we, we can't just assume, sit back and do nothing. So, the, so what can we um, do about it? Well, the first and simple thing about it is, is to do what we can to keep the exchange rate low. Now, that's not a terribly easy thing to do because that makes our trade, makes us competitive. It makes foreign holidays expensive, of course. Those are, so the, some of us who like foreign holidays will suffer from this policy, but nevertheless, it's a good policy in aggregate for the economy as a whole. Try and keep the exchange rate down. And the best way to do that is to try and keep the interest rate low and to do something about the fiscal deficit. The second thing is to promote ex external competitiveness, well, as I said, one of, one of which is the exchange rate. But the other thing is to avoid measures that damage our exports. I mean, the first thing is the City of London. Now, the, the point about this is a lot of people are gunning from the City of London, not surprising in view of the huge bonuses, which I personally would love to have, but uh, mm -hmm. this is one side of it. So there's a strong populist hostility to, to the banking sector because of this. Maybe justified, maybe not. There are movements by the European Union to regulate the financial sector in a way that may damage the city. Now, the thing we have to avoid, I think, in this context is um, uh, shooting ourselves in the foot the fact is the city is a valuable earner of foreign exchange for Britain and it's all very well saying we should produce manufactured goods instead and export manufacturers instead of the city because the city of London corrupts us by paying enormous, is a, is a gambling casino that pays enormous salaries to some people on bonuses. We should be more rational about it and say that it is true but we can't afford to get rid of the city of London until we've got something to replace it with. There's a famous um, Soviet Marxist called Bukharin, who said we can't build present bricks with future straw. Well, by the same token, what we can't do is we can't get rid of the city until we can replace it with something else, which is not so easy. So I would say myself that we should be cautious about changes to the city of London which undermine its earning capacity. And I'm not going to say why, where we should be cautious. The second thing, I think, is that we have to think what are the other activities we can promote. Well, the two major um, positive activities in the sense, export sense, one of which is so-called knowledge-intensive services. Britain earns a lot of money already from basically things that use the kind of skills uh, which are taught in this university and many other universities, which are knowledge-intensive services. They cover a whole range of things from consultancy, architecture, law, etc., etc., etc. It's a big variety of them. They've been doing well, but they could do better. The second thing is uh, the manufacturing sector. We're still one of the biggest manufacturing economies in the world, despite what people say. We're still in the top 10 of manufacturing producers, um, which is, we won't be there <laughs> much longer, but we are at the moment still. And we've still got some very good bits to the manufacturing sector. And it seems to me that rebalancing the economy by, by trying to help build up manufacturing is the basis to long-term success of the economy. But in knowledge-intensive services and manufacturers are not, don't, are not alternatives because they both tend to use the same knowledge 
capacities in the society. And it seems to me that now our oil's gone down the drain, um, as it were, <laughs> or the production's disappearing, we, we have to recognise that our country has to live on its wits. So the question is, how do we um, exploit our potential to the best advantage in this context? Thank you. Thanks, Bob. There's a, a rather curious irony that it was a, the flow of North Sea oil that gave Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government so much freedom, and it may be the ebbing of the oil that causes Cameron's Conservative government some pain. Now, Mr. Milne. When it comes to the legacy of the recession, I, I, my hunch is uh, that we'll be looking back in 10 or 15 years at um, this period, the, this great financial crisis. In many ways, like my generation, and I guess this applies to Bob as well, looked at the, the oil shocks and the, the problems of stagflation back in the um, early 1970s, that it was a, a sort of turning point. We said, well, hang on, this is a system which isn't, isn't quite working. Um, the, the penny hasn't yet dropped. There's too, there's too many people in, in newspapers, on television, on the media, who, who are really assuming, and I think quite wrongly, oh, this was just a temporary recession. Um, there were some problems in the banking sector. I didn't quite understand those, but we've patched up the banks. We've given them lots of money, um, and they'll, they'll be all right now. And then we can go back to business as usual. Um, I'm pretty sure that's going to turn out to be entirely wrong. Um, and I'd like to explain why, why I think that. I always like to go back to the, the basic idea in economics. And ultimately, if it's a free exchange, it's probably beneficial to both sides. Of course, there can be problems of power and misinformation. But you know, that, that's, in a way, why I still believe in the market. Um, if two people are agreeing to an exchange, then it should be to the benefit of both of them. And I think if you look at globalization, if you like, over the last, last year's on the whole, it has been to the benefit both of consumers in the West and to workers in China and other parts of the um, emerging world. But that was a merry-go-round, which I think, in a way, had to, had to stop. And the reason um, is the kind of balance of payments problems that, that Bob's been talking about. Um, there were many reputable economists, I think particularly of Paul Krugman, who some, some of you may know his books. He's a, he's a superb writer, um, tremendous if you get a chance to hear him on radio or television, a great, a great communicator. I remember particularly he was associated with the view of a collapse of the dollar, that all the borrowing by US consumers, because rather like consumers in the UK, they were financing a, a, a boom in consumption, house prices and so on, out of borrowing from the banks, um, he, he thought, well, that's probably going to come to an end when the economies on the other side of the world, the Chinese, actually also the Jap Japanese and Germany, they begin to think, well, we're making lots of surplus. We're selling all these goods to the West, and we're getting, what do we get in return? Well, they're getting a lot of dollars. They're getting a lot of money which they're then investing in, typically in US uh, government bonds, maybe British government bonds as well. Um, so Krugman's prediction was that this would end in some sort of collapse of the dollar. I, I think his instincts were right, but if, if you think of this global system as sort of water flowing around pipes, as a, as a sort of tradition in economics of thinking of the economy in that way, and it's quite illuminating. Um, and 
if you like, if you build up too much water in one of the tanks, which is the debt, um, that, well, you know, there's only a certain capacity to hold debt in, in various, whether it's, whether it's consumers, government, companies. Um, and eventually that's going to spill over and, the, and uh, the, the circulation is going to not, not going to continue. Um, but I think where we were all taken by surprise is that the, the, it wasn't the US government or the British government that people lost faith in. It wasn't the US consumer or the British consumer who was no longer able to borrow. It was a loss of credibility in the banking system. So the pressure point in that we thought the banking system was a very strong pipe that would carry this water, as it were, without breaking, and that the problems would appear, you know, many economists were aware of this as an issue, but we thought, well, this is 5, 10, 15 years from now, there's time to deal with those problems. So the great surprise was that it was actually the banking system that blew up. Um, and what I, what I tried to do writing about this was to, as someone who knows the banking system fairly well, um, to try and explain why that happened. I guess the, the positive side of what my book has to say is, is that um, actually probably the banks weren't quite as bad as, as, as many thought they were. Um, so if, I won't go into the details of that, but I think, I think the, 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 the problems of, of the banks have been in many ways greatly overstated. I think a lot of it was, not entirely, some banks really were in deep trouble, but I think a lot of it was what we would refer to as a, a liquidity problem as much as a, a solvency problem. It was the fact that the banks blew up, as it were, as the pressure point. Um, how have we responded to that? Well, we've come up with a decent enough temporary solution, which is to say, well, if we can't get money into the banking system to lend on to consumers, if that bit of the, 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 the circular flow is, is broken, um, well, government can take over that job. So what, what governments have been engaging in is a very dramatic fiscal stimulus, um, cutting taxes, increasing spending, and, and that's kept demand reasonably high. I think without that, I think it was absolutely the right thing to do from a policy perspective, and without that we would have been suffering a, a very much uh, worse economic crisis than we actually have. So I know, is it, I think in the UK, it's a, hearing on the news today, it's been a 6% now, cumulative fall in output, a dramatic rise in unemployment. I mean, that's a, that's a big economic shock. But it, w without the actions that have been taken by government, also by the Bank of England, uh, similarly by the US Treasury and Federal Reserve and governments and central banks around the world, it, it could have been a lot worse. But, and this is where I think I'm in total agreement with Bob, the, the issue is that's, that's a, the right way to go for the first you know, to, to deal with the immediate effects of the crisis. But how, how do we sort this out going forward? You can't rely indefinitely on uh, government spending, deficit spending, as a way of maintaining the, the flow. Ultimately, if we, keep, if we, if we don't uh, think of a solution, ultimately it'll be a loss of faith in the solvency of government. And that's a very much more serious problem than loss of faith in the solvency of the banking system. Now, that's, that's a long way off. We're on a train line now which, where the trains are heading in that direction, and we have to work out exactly how to avoid that situation. What this means, I think, is a period of considerable economic uncertainty for the next, well, 
I don't know how long, but at least for the next five years or so. Um, I think many of the thoughts that Bob has about restoring the UK economy to balance um, are absolutely right. And I, and I, and I, sh I wholly share the view that we mustn't panic. Um, and I think equally that's true for the United States, that they're no longer going to be able to rely on consumer spending as engine of growth. So I think the legacy of the recession from the point of view, uh, as I see it, is that it's not business as usual. We're not going back to um, just cutting interest rates and that'll see house prices and spending and everyone feeling better off. In, in some ways, we have to go back to hard work. Um, we have to um, earn our way in the world. Uh, but I think we have to get away from this short-term, oh, when is the recession over? What a silly question. We have to get back to thinking about the real economics that, that attracted me to this discipline you know, when I was 18, 19, 20 years of age, trying to understand um, what, what makes um, our economic system tick. And hopefully, and it's as much a political as, a, as an economic issue, reaching an understanding and a kind of consensus on the kind of things that will um, help us avoid extremes of unemployment and poverty and so forth in the future. Now, I think the general theme is not really the banks. The banks aren't the issue at the end of the day. It's a, a much broader, deeper change. <coughs> and we'll have to see what happens. Thank you. You're listening to the 2009 Cambridge Festival of Ideas. We're discussing what the lasting legacy of the recession will be. Next is Jacqueline Scott. Alistair sort of gave me the lead-in because he was ending with, with talking about how to avoid um, the poverty and the unemployment. And in a sense, it's, it's that. The recession's impact is on individual family lives when people lose their jobs. So I'm coming at this as a sociologist, not as an economist. So just to remind me, um, the British economy was declared in recession in January 2009, when two quarters um, consecutively the economy contracted, and that was the biggest decline since 1980. And of course, in terms of the things I'm talking about and the impact of the recession on individual well-being, family well-being, it does make sense to look back at the past recessions, the sort of things that Bob and, and Alistair were talking about. I mean, this one, very different. Now, I work in the area of gender inequality and household change. And last March, because I, I, I run a research network on gender inequalities in production and reproduction, we thought, it would be a very good idea to hold a workshop here on gender and the economic crunch. And back in March, things were actually looking a bit different. Um, people were saying how the real victims of this recession were going to be women. Women losing jobs twice as fast as men, according to the latest Official employment figures over the last quarter, the number of women in full-time jobs fell by 53,000, the number for men, 36,000, and then Harriet Harman, women much more worried about the economy than men. Again, it seems this recession is not different in the sense that it is men who are losing their 
jobs at a higher rate than women, and particularly um, ethnic minorities. Andrew Oswald, who's an economist at uh, Warwick, hammers home why unemployment uh, matters so much in terms of individual well-being, um, life satisfaction. And what he's doing here is getting one of these big cross-European surveys. So 271,224 individuals from all countries he's put together here, um, just showing that, that levels of satisfaction are so much lower um, for the unemployed than the employed. Well, not very surprising. But he goes on to try and disaggregate this and suggests that about 20% of the <coughs> decline in satisfaction um, you can trace to the income loss, but 80% seems much more related to things like self-esteem, status loss, loss of social networks. And this work is claiming that the experience of unemployment goes on affecting your life satisfaction long after you have a job again. So this long-term impact on well-being. In, in the recession, there's a generalized sort of drop in well-being as well. I find these statistics, which are sort of arguing about whether men or women are being more affected by the recession, somewhat silly, because obviously our lives are interlinked. And if you're thinking about the effect of unemployment on family life, then men's unemployment is linked to a much higher risk of the couple splitting up, <coughs> and it doesn't matter in what period of the relationship that unemployment occurs. Rather interestingly, and I don't have an explanation for this, women's unemployment doubles the odds of a split up, but only for those couples who have been together for a longer time. Uh, a, a sort of interesting difference. Quite a lot of this you see played out in terms of satisfaction with the finances of the household. And of course, when it comes to the finances of the household, it was often assumed you could just sort of think of the household having equal access to resources, um, as if everything was poured evenly. Well, it's not that. And in lower income households, it is much more likely to be the woman who's managing the day-to-day -day budget. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that um, um, women are much more likely to put their own personal spending well below um, that of their, their kids or partners. So these sorts of dynamics, too, um, matter. Now, coming back to the groups that really are hit hard um, by the recession, there's been a, a great focus on, on um, young people and the statistics look, look really, really grim. I mean, in July 2009, the unemployment amongst the 18 to 24 group was 17.3, so this is up from 11.9 the previous year. And of course, this group who's not in education or employment or training is rising very dramatically. And that's something that the government is, is trying to respond to in the budget um, 
the job guarantees were announced. And another economist, Richard Layard from LSE, um, talks about how this um, buildup of long-term unemployment is a huge problem for our society because um, what's very clear is that unemployment goes on having bad effects after people have re-entered the labor market. There's very clear evidence across the life course that unemployment increases the risk of depression and later ill health. Um, there's interesting work about the way education on the whole means that you, you know, you're adopting a healthier lifestyle, you've got the skills which are going to negotiate a, a depressed labor market better. But even amongst the more educated who lose their job, interestingly, good healthy behavior increases immediately after unemployment. But that's soon wiped out. And many of the advantages of education um, also go with unemployment experience. And there isn't a catch-up of individuals' health and economic recovery for those who have experienced job loss, even when the recession ends. The literature is really, really very clear about showing these long-term effects on people's lives of unemployment. And if we think about the work that's being done on trying to alleviate child poverty, one of the things that I worry about is that policies which are really, first of all, centered on the long-term effects. Sure Start was a wonderful example of this. I mean, a huge amount of research showing the importance of child, early child poverty and the damaging <coughs> legacy right across into adulthood, later life, meant that the Sure Start initiative was very much trying um, to get a much richer environment in those crucial preschool early years of life. But it got hijacked incredibly quickly and started to be turned into wheeling out the much larger scale childcare to get mums back in the workforce. And of course, politics is driven by short-termism and the effects of the recession on people's lives are very long-term. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. And can I thank uh, Alistair and Bob and, and, and Jackie? And can I thank you for being involved in this discussion? Thank you. Thank you.